So this program is going to become um, hybrid, but nobody really knows we're here yet, hardly. <laughs> so we'll keep um, having these lovely intimate um, meetings. So I thought we'd start with some meditation. And today we're going to talk about the hindrance of doubt. And I would like to encourage us to reflect on our experience of doubt a little bit here in this meditation. So the, the best way to deal with doubt is to investigate and talk with knowledgeable people and really identify what the the cause of the doubt is that's arising for us and have some strategies for working with it. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but for now, finding a comfortable posture. And this is our first way to feel solid, which is the opposite of doubt to feel strong, to feel relaxed and safe. And if we're ever in an environment where we can't do that, then we might want to change what's happening, change or wait um, and meditate where we feel safe. And so the, the main feature of the posture for meditation is to have a relatively straight spine. And the Buddha said to be upright. And we want to be relaxed at the same time. And then sometimes we might have doubt about how to get started in our meditation. And many of you are seasoned practitioners and you probably have your own methods or routine. And having a routine of some kind can really help. And so if we don't have that yet, then we want to develop it. A way of being able to be prepared. And one way to be prepared is to have more than one standard approach to meditation that we are comfortable with and that we practice regularly. Now, Buddha gave many methods and that's because they have different purpose, purposes, different 
results and are useful at different times depending on our situation, on the conditions. So at the very least, it's good to have two styles or two approaches to meditation. And the most common ones, I would say, are mindfulness, some application of mindfulness, probably mindfulness of in and out breathing, and loving kindness meditation. And there are times when our standard meditation object just isn't the right thing. And then we want that second one to use instead. But it's also possible to add more to the meditation toolkit. And this all helps to relieve doubt. We can have an understanding of when and how to use these meditation approaches and methods, objects of focus. And then we don't have to wonder, what should I be doing now? So as we settle into meditation, notice if there's any doubt. And don't be concerned if there is, it's just a natural part of developing our practice. If you already have the tools for addressing that doubt, then great. And if not, then we can explore after this meditation how to do that. So if your meditation object is in and out breathing, We place our attention on the breath. Observing each breath with a kind of gentleness, kindness, attentiveness, curiosity, interest. And we want to have that interest and connection with whatever meditation object you're using. Put some effort into it. It's an interesting kind of effort, a kind of effort that brings brightness and being alive, being interested, but also able to relax, not be tight at all. 
because gradually as your meditation deepens, we want to see more and more relaxation and a falling away of things that are connected with the phase that we're currently in. So if we're using thought to get started in meditation and then later that falls away, if we're feeling the joy of being settled and still, turning inwards, and that joy increases as we go deeper, but then as we go deeper still, it falls away and gives rise to a softer, more subtle happiness. So this is the trend we want to see happen, encourage, but not grasp after.
That bell was a little soft, but I guess it came through okay. <laughs> All right, so today is our um, last but not least hindrance. And um, so we'll go into doubt. Uh, no, we're not going to go into doubt. We're going to <laughs> explore what to do with doubt. So there are different kinds of doubt, um, as you probably are well aware. And some kinds of doubt are actually healthy and good. Um, to be able to know when we know something and when we don't is important. And many things that we might doubt, um, like whether or not what we're being told is true, uh, wherever that might come from, um, not being sure about a source and needing to check it out all those kinds of things are healthy and good we we need to have doubt where doubt is uh, appropriate but that's not really what the buddha meant by a hindrance to the development of our wisdom which is what we're really concerned with and like all the hindrances, they don't just start in the meditation sessions, they start in our life. Uh, they're in our life already, and then they naturally come about when we're, when we're meditating. So as we mentioned with the other hindrances, we want to look at the cause and with doubt, it's kind of it's helpful to look at the the kinds of I don't know bases that bases there might be for the doubt we experience. Like sometimes it's fear or anxiety or worry. Sometimes it comes from a kind of general confusion or maybe a self doubt. We haven't um, maybe we've been conditioned to you know, not feel very confident in ourselves, And sometimes the doubt is really from not understanding Dhamma and uh, needing to gain more uh, knowledge. The way the suttas talk about it sometimes or the way uh, Buddhist teachers talk about it is that the the doubt that's a real challenge is skeptical doubt. So doubting the Buddha, the Dhamma, um, the actuality of enlightened Sangha, um, not understanding what the steps are for developing on the path and having doubt about that or doubt about the training. Is, is one way that it's expressed. So when we experience these kinds, any of this, uh, there are some ways that we can deal with it. And like I said, the first thing that's important is to recognize that we're, that we're in doubt. Yeah, I, as I was thinking about this topic, I was re remembering a friend from a long time ago before I really uh, knew very much about Buddhism. And she said that she was seeing her therapist and as, as she's talking to her therapist, this um, 
phrase kept coming up, I don't know. You know, maybe I don't know if the her therapist was asking her questions about, you know, how she feels or what she wants. And she kept saying, I don't know. And finally, the therapist said, well, what do you know? And it was really interesting as she retold this story. It also really brought me to a realization that I didn't have much clarity around what I knew and what I didn't know. And to start to really reflect on that, like, what do I know? What do I really feel I know for sure to be true? And that's a place to start instead of spinning around in uncertainty and doubt. And so when we, so this whole idea of what do we do to address doubt? How do we, how do we reduce it? How do we um, recognize that we, we want to address, tackle, um, work through the unwholesome or debilitating kinds of doubt? The first step and, and the way that we proceed is by developing a, a stronger foundation of what we know and what we have confidence in. And we keep adding to that through our practice. And we need to look at how does that happen? How do we add to that foundation of clarity and certainty and understanding and wisdom? So like all the the other hindrances, doubt weakens wisdom. It gets in the way of our development of wisdom. So this is, you know, when, when the Thai Force Masters talk about fighting the kilesas, this is the fight. <laughs> We're going to, you know, really address, face doubt, address it, and use the, the methods that are tried and true at laying the doubt to rest. So in the suttas, uh, the Buddha said that the main thing that causes doubt to arise is careless attention. So we're not clear about what we're paying attention to and we're not clear about what we're observing. And so mindfulness is very important and to be able to have this careful attention. This, these uh, little um, statements about doubt are found in the Anguttara Nikaya in the very first chapter, where there's a, there's a whole section on the hindrances. And, and so it's uh, the, the first one is uh, number 15, where the Buddha says, I don't see even one other thing on account of which unarisen doubt arises and arisen doubt increases and expands so much as careless attention. And then a few, few um, verses later, number 20, he says, I do not see even one other thing on account of which unarisen doubt does not arise and arisen doubt is abandoned as much as careful attention. And, you know, so what does that look like? And I think the very first thing that we can notice is whether the doubt is there or not. And the Buddha uses that a lot, a lot in um, in his 
his um, teachings because first and foremost, we have to know what our mental state is. That's, that's where we begin. And we have to know where our, where our felt sense, our feeling experience is. And that's where we begin. There's a, a sutta in the um, Samyutta Nikaya. So you'll find a lot of, of references to the hindrances in the part of the Samyutta Nikaya, the link discourses that talks about the enlightenment factors. Because the seven enlightenment factors are hindered by the hindrances. The development of enlightenment factors is directly opposed to the five hindrances. So that's the sutta, that's the Nikaya, um, the Sanyuta number 46. And in verse 55, or in uh, Sutta 55, so Sanyuta Nikaya 46.55, it says, when one dwells with a mind obsessed by doubt, overwhelmed by doubt, and one does not understand as it really is the escape from arisen doubt. On that occasion, one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. And then even those verses that you've recited many times, you can't remember. And, it, and the Buddha says, it's suppose there's a bowl of water that's churned up and unsettled, muddy, placed in the dark. And if a person with good eyesight were to try to look at their reflection in that water, they wouldn't know it or see it as it really is. And so this is, this is to help us recognize the importance is when the mind is in such a state that it, we don't even know what's good for us or good for the people around us, that's a pretty important thing to pay attention to. And then the Buddha talks in that same Sanyutta, um, Sutta 51, about what really um, helps to relieve doubt or starve it, you might say, denourish it. And he says that this can comes from really examining what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. So the first thing we can do when we have doubt about something is we can really look at, is what I'm looking at wholesome or unwholesome? Um, the Buddha goes on to say blameable or blameless, inferior or superior, dark or light, bright, dark or bright. And, and he says, frequently giving careful attention to this way of seeing, is this wholesome or not? This is what helps to remove doubt. Now there is some um, support in the commentary also about ways of overcoming doubt. And it talks about things that are really common sense. Like when we have doubt about something, we need to ask questions and learn about it. So the first thing is learning. 
The second thing they mention is investigation. So in the same way, we're going to dig into understanding what's really there and what we can know about. I think this was where a lot of my doubt was before really learning about the Dhamma was I just didn't know. I didn't understand. And for me, the Buddha's way of describing reality really made things clear. So this is, again, like this development of this foundation in us of, you know, like building up what the storehouse, the the grounding of what we need. If, if we're engaged in a spiritual path that has a lot of kind of um, hand-waving and fluffiness about it, and we really, it's, we really can't substantiate what we're saying or what we're experiencing in in some kind of real um, concrete way. So that's a little tough because there are these elements of the spiritual life, you know, it goes beyond this visible direct experience in the visible material world to direct experience of what's beyond this world. So there's th these different ways of, of learning through, you know, really, really developing our knowledge and our experience in the world. And then there's the direct experience in meditation that opens up into, you know, these, uh, elements of wisdom that we can't gain through this kind of material investigation. So it's, it's like really understanding that there's more to it than the, the concrete, you know, from through the senses. And yet it's every bit is real and clear and adds to our foundation of what we know and what we can rely on. So the commentary talks about learning, investigation, and then the familiarity with the training. And they say with the vinya, we can keep in mind that there's the monastic, um, you know, code of vinya, and then there's what we have as lay people as well. You know, the the precepts and how to conduct ourselves. And this also helps us to become more grounded and clear. And then they say resoluteness, having the determination to really become clear about things. And good friendship. This is so important that we have people in our life that we can talk with about the doubts that arise. That, that also have a foundation of clarity that they're working from. And finally, suitable talk. So this unwise attention that the Buddha says uh, is, is really a, a strong kind of nourishment of doubt is something that we want to avoid. And a lot of it comes through what we take in through the senses and what we um, and what we talk about. And then the commentary also reminds us that 
the final falling away of doubt comes, at least doubt in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, is through stream entry, the experience of entering the stream, which, you know, I really appreciate um, my monastic seniors who really encourage all of us to make an effort for that kind of deep realization to come into our life, into our experience. So the different kinds of things that we might have doubt about um, might make us feel like, well, maybe these approaches that the Buddha gives or the commentators give don't really cover it. But it's, it's valuable to look at those and see, you know, what can I do to know what, um, what makes this solid? And sometimes we can't know something. Like, let's say, I remember, I'll just use an example from my life where I was graduating from graduate school. I was a single mom. My kids were like 10 and 13. And I had to decide where I was going to go to take my first real job, I'll say, in computer science. And I had four, actually five options, four job offers in different parts of the country and the possibility of entering a PhD program at the University of Washington. So what do you do? Sometimes you just don't know. You can make a decision about, you know, do I pick this one or do I pick that one? But there are so many unknowns. You don't really know how it's going to be for me, for my kids. You know, so there are some things we just can't like completely nail down and understand. We can't see what's going to happen in the future. But that feeling of, of being in doubt can be managed by at least identifying the, the space, like what is it I know and what is it I don't know, what are my priorities, what are the values, take our best shot at it and try it. And this a lot of times is what we need to do with the doubt that comes up in our meditation or the doubt that comes up in our spiritual practice. If we really can't see what the path is going to lead to, take a step in one direction. And then check it out. See what, what it feels like. What is the result? Maybe not immediately. Because meditation takes, you know, if, you, if you're working with a certain meditation object, for example, it could take a couple months before you really have a good sense of how, it, how it's working for you. But then, you know, if, it, if it's yielding some good results, you can take another step in that direction. And this is a really helpful, that kind of idea that comes up in the Iripada, that investigation of like, okay, how's this going? Do I need to make some course correction here? But this is much um, more supportive of our development than being just caught up in doubt and not taking a step. Sometimes we get paralyzed by doubt. And we need to have that, that determination, that resoluteness to not let ourselves just get stalled there. 
So there's, you know, I've, I've known people who really struggle with doubt. And I think that what I've seen is that their best um, management of it is really through the support of good friends. So that's an extremely important part. And I'm so happy to meet with everyone on Saturday morning and we get to share. And I really wanna hear uh, what you all are um, experiencing or reflecting on with regard to this topic. <clears throat> and yeah, what do you think? Or feel free. Raise your hand whenever you like. Yes, Steve. Yeah, I, I reflect on the, uh, the the hindrance of doubt a lot, and um, and I've, I've kind of been working on a distinction between doubt and not knowing. <clears throat> not knowing is it feels much lighter. And it's it's just an admission that I'm I'm not certain. Mm -hmm. uh, doubt is kind of more of an active hindrance. It it um, it's it's heavier and um, and uh, not not knowing is kind of well we'll see uh, kind of take a we'll see attitude to it. Uh, I like what you said about substantiating it and. Uh, it, it seems like a, a lot of the path is uh, cultivating our ability to discern and know for ourselves what's true and um, and then recognizing again when we know and when we don't know. I, I know I put my phone here last night, but somehow it's over there. Um, it's, <laughs> That sort of thing. Yeah. Well, thanks for the talk. It was yeah. Something yeah. Come over, come back to over and over again. Yeah. Thanks for those reflections. I think that's really, really so true. It's very different when we think I just don't know this, right? and maybe I can't know, or what can I know about it, and what can I not know about it. Um, as opposed to that, you know, fog, uh, that that um, paralysis that comes with doubt, the heaviness, as you said. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, uh, <clears throat> there are a lot of suttas talking about um, clinging to views as well. And I think uh, that kind of has to be teased out from doubt um, if you... Mm -hmm. Well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, sometimes maybe we try to overcome doubt by just settling on something, even though we don't really know, but we'll take it on as this is my stance, this is my belief, when actually there isn't anything um, solid underneath it. And this is how we get stuck holding on to wrong view. And we have to be really willing as we practice 
to let go of, you know, to, to want so much to see the truth that we're willing to set down any view that we have. We're willing to set down and, and, and shift away from any conditioning that we've had to really that, that the knowing the truth and seeing the truth directly is our highest aim. And if we do that, then everything else falls in place. Our kindness, our virtue. I mean, we, we really have to keep that as the, the guiding star to know the Dhamma directly. And, and this is a very important point, that tendency to want to grab onto a view, an opinion, a stance, and to hold it, even though it may not be may not be the truth. When we, our identity gets all wrapped up in it. We have to be willing to let go of our identity. None of this identity, this self-view is going to last as we awaken. And what a relief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Patty? Um, first, I would like to um, thank you for the reminder of the, the bowl of water with the dirt in it that's cloudy and you put it in a, a dark closet and you close the door and you're going, can you see? No, I cannot see. <laughs> um, that helps a lot in doubt, just to say, oh, oh, yeah, how can you know? Because my um, my current kind of situation, I don't know if it's an ex existential doubt, it's not about Dhamma, it's not about the path uh, or the Buddha, um, but the situation I'm in is, um, uh, it's, I question and I doubt my my life, sort of, not my life, not that way, but like, how is it that I'm supposed to be here? How is it that I'm supposed to be in this life here? Um, am I supposed to be busier? Am I supposed to be more reflective? Am I, you know, and as Langpok says often, what are the results of what you're doing? And so, I have to, it's almost of like letting go of that question and stepping back into the results are contentment and quiet and ease. And so it's it's not a black and white kind of deal. It's just kind of a, hmm, well, this seems to be okay. I, it feels content. It feels satisfied. I'm, I'm a little hesitant. I just got kind of a, a loving lecture from my sister this morning before I got on with you that who's very, she has no concept of our practice, but, but is very quick to offer helpful suggestions. You know, well, you just need to get more involved with some stuff there and then you'll be settled more. You know, it's going to take a couple of years to really, <clears throat> so, you know, <clears throat> to offer this point of view 
and open to others, I guess I just have to trust my Kalyanamita, you know, and um, and the Dhamma. But it, what did you say about, uh, I don't recall, something about thinking, not think, was it in the suttas, not thinking too much or not uh, taking on thought too much? What was that? Well, one of the things it says is that the thing that really feeds doubt yeah. is careless attention. Ah, mm -hmm. and, and that can also, in, one, in another place in the sutta, it says, suttas, it says that when we attend to the things that bring up doubt, then we make more doubt. <laughs> you know? Yes. You know, yes. So it's like, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, like, what I realized is I'm seeing more of you now than when you were in Portland. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so um, it is true that there's no life situation that's going to be perfect. It's going to have its pluses and minuses. We're really like experiencing that right now because now we've got this meditation center, which is a sweet little house in Seattle. And we're going back and forth. Uh, to the hermitage, which right now is just like there are down trees and branches all over the place. I wish you could all come for a, like three days of work day because we got the work. <laughs> You'd have a great time. <laughs> but, you know, there are so many things we love about being in the forest. And there are some drawbacks. And then we come here in town and there are so many nice things about being in town. And there are some drawbacks. And, you know, as long as we, if we keep focusing on the drawbacks, even though they're manageable and they're mm -hmm. okay, then we keep suffering about, am I in the right place? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? But if we really look at, like you said, you know, the, the, the supports and the, the results, like what's happening with the mind. And, you know, the simplest version of that was when, Mahapajapati went to the Buddha and asked for a, a Dhamma and brief teaching. And he said, if it leads to peace, it's on the right track. And if it doesn't, it isn't. You know, so, you know, so that's that's really that's great. And I I also when you were talking, I was thinking about the monastic point of view is that we don't we we don't identify with where we're living. It's just our roof over our head for the night. And, you know, if you think in that way, um, what can I do to appreciate this roof over my head for this night and make use of it for my development? And that's all we really need to do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Patty. Caitlin? Thank you. Uh, that was um, really helpful, actually, for me to hear you talk about the, um, you know, sort of letting go of the, what's the downside, you know, of this situation. Um, and, um, I think whenever this hindrance comes up, I always have this little wondering in my mind because doubt has not been a, like when I found the Dhamma, it was like, oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. 
Like it was, there was no, I don't have that kind of doubt. I don't have any doubt about the Dhamma. And, um, and in fact, other people have a lot of doubt about my devotion to the Dhamma. Like, why are you doing another retreat? And you should be living life. And, you know, why are you going to another study or whatever? Um, although I think they've thrown up their hands by now um, about me. Um, <clears throat> I think where my doubt comes in is a couple of ways. One is um, I... Uh, I have this refrain in my mind about how do I best uh, devote my life to the Dhamma? Like what, you know, it's like, I don't know if there is a best, maybe there isn't one, but maybe there's the best for me. Um, my answer generally, at least in the last few years has been more, just do more, go to more studies, go to, you know, and um, I I don't know, you know, if that's the, way but that's what I usually opt for um and then the other part of my doubt is I guess it's the refrain in my head about like when things happen like I've talked here about you know being attacked verbally attacked a lot um in my community and um so I um I am trying to respond in a way that's in line with the dhamma and that's where my doubt comes in it's like well is it should i do this but if i'm too passive then people feel like they can just pick on me um and i don't want to be in that position but on the other hand like like i'm not sure how to hold a firm boundary and it's like so the little voice in my head is what would the buddha say what would the buddha do you know yeah <laughs> i don't know um so anyway, yeah, anything, any thoughts you have on that, I would appreciate hearing. Sure. Um, when we think about, am I doing enough? Um, Ajahn Pasno said to me one time, when we think about, am I doing enough? The answer is always going to be no. <laughs> so, <just> go there. <laughs> and, and we think sometimes when we think about doing the I'm having some feedback happening. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe I'll just, yeah, maybe we'll just mute you for a minute. Yeah, so when we think about best, that too can be a real trap. Um, maybe just better is good to think, how can I do this better? And then like you said, maybe it is going to another retreat or, or doing more learning, but then looking at the result, like we've said. Because sometimes I've had to limit my listening to Dhamma talks because I would listen and listen. Like there's almost a, an urgency or a frantic energy underneath. Instead of getting quiet and contemplating the Dhamma talk I just heard and taking it deeper. Sometimes we get more, you know, like if we're stranded on the desert island and we have one Dhamma book with us, we might get more out of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to just consider that sometimes you know just like I used to drive to a Bayagiri and back so it was like about a three three and a half hour drive for me and I would listen to Dhamma talks in the car and then I had to start to limit myself to one talk per trip because otherwise it's just like you know so much coming in but no real 
integration of it. And, you know, so just reflecting on things like that. And as far as the boundaries are concerned, I used to play the game, what would an arahant do? <laughs> and one time I asked Ajahn Pasano about this very sticky situation I was in with a landlord. And, you know, landlord situations can be very sticky sometimes. And I said, so what would an arahant do? Would they just be all, oh, you know, like, of course it's okay. I'm just full of loving kindness. And, you know, and he said, it depends on the arahant. <laughs> One ar arahant might be like that. Come in, have some tea. Another arahant might be chasing him off the property with a stick. Oh my God, oh gosh, <laughs> what do I do with this? <laughs> so we're going to have a day long on boundaries. And we haven't set the date yet, but I hope that um, you can join us when we do. And we'll have it here at this location, but we'll have it online too. And it really is the case that the Buddha, he definitely talked about boundaries, even though he didn't use that language. And it's something that I'm told people don't hear much in Buddhist circles. So we're going to really dig into that. I think you're doing pretty well, Carolyn. Thank you, Aya. I'm looking forward to that uh, day long whenever you do it. Yeah. It should be a, it should be a month long though. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll take one step in that direction and then see what we should do. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Carolyn. Joyce? Oh, thank you so much for this topic. About three weeks ago or so, I was just absolutely paralyzed with doubt. And it took me a really long time to even realize the source was doubt. And I was really, really stuck. Um, and like you were just mentioning, it didn't even give me an opportunity to make a choice, make a wrong turn, and then realize my mistake. I was just absolutely lost. And that I just wanted to read this quote that I found because I turned to the Dhamma and I went to the hindrances and read about doubt. And finally, this thing just jumped out at me and it was so clear. And it's actually by Jan Martel from Life of Pi. You might be familiar with this quote, but oh boy. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. <laughs> yeah there you go something about that just popped me out and i saw where i was stuck it was just so helpful oh. just wanted to share that with everybody yeah yeah thank you Joyce. that's a great quote yeah yeah um sometimes when we really face the, the danger and the mode of operation we've adopted or the kind of deciding to live with the hindrance that's plaguing us when we really get the danger then we're much more likely to treat it like a hot coal we've just picked up <laughs> so it's really good denny hi uh thank you thank you for this i uh the thing that stood out for me <clears throat> most was the uh, 
the careless attention. Um, I'm not sure how, how but, but anyhow, it just put me in a mind of like, how I, I want to do this stuff part-time. Uh, I'm realizing that I carry doubt all, all the time. And I was, I, something happened with a, a friend of mine, uh, who I get along with very well, but his, his partner, she, she just drives me crazy. And I, and I find that I just tolerate her. And I'm aware that that's where the doubt is. That's where the careless attention is. Because I start to treat her as if there's something wrong with her. Um, that she's not this, this beautiful person and full of, I mean, she might have character defects or whatever that rub me the wrong way. But I take that to mean something about her, about that she, that I'm, I'm better. Basically, it comes down to that. Uh, and that's my, that's my careless attention to, to what all this is about. That, uh, and I, and I think that I, I had a lot of problems, you know, with, you know, growing up Catholic and one of the things that put me off about going to Christian churches as I got older was I found this hypocrisy of like, uh, going in and listen to the sermon and kindness and all that, but then I'd find people afterwards. And they're just as gossipy as they were before. And I'm that person. I am that person that I am not taking this with me all of the time. This is, I think this is about like giving up all of our old beliefs, not some of them, the ones that suit me. It, it means questioning everything. And, um, I um I so appreciate you you calling my attention to this. Uh, thank you. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you, Denny. Ling. Thank you, Aya. Um, I also resonate that careful, careless attention. It's definitely one of my takeaway today. Um, I also kind of really take away of what you say, learning about Dharma, because I really like realize um, I have been having this doubt about meditation for years now. Um, I love Dharma and everything I learned, actually, I learned from YouTube. <laughs> I I I found Ajahn Brahm first time from YouTube. I read his book and I just fell in love. And I started reading mindfulness and beyond and I got lost because I feel sometimes shameless. I, I can't find a beautiful breast, you know. I tried, I tried. Um I always have doubts like wow, I probably can't do anything until I found Ayakema and I just love her. I loved all her books and um, also meditation. You know, I saw, I just loved this, um, you know, body by part, um, part by part body scan. Almost like this is the only thing I can find peace. And even with the heart, but I love to do it. 
So my question <laughs> was doubt. It was like, well, I've never been to any meditation retreat, but feel like everybody's talking about breath. I'm the only one kind of couldn't have any friendship with with breath. Even Ajahn Brahm said, be a friend. Yeah, I want to be a friend, but I just don't know. Is this something, you know, especially you talk about eightfold path. The last one is jhana, is breath. Am I, I won't be able to, this life, to walk this path. So, I mean, this is kind of doubt. I've been thinking uh, quite a long time now. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. If you have any thought. This is very important, Ling, and it's important to, I think, find the meditation object that that really suits you. It sounds like body contemplation is helpful, which is good. It's an excellent practice. Um, We don't have to do uh, breath meditation necessarily, although sometimes the challenge we have with breath meditation can also be developed, you know, like we can work through that. But it's, it's not the case that you have to do it a certain way. I mean, you can even use loving kindness as the way into, into deep meditation, into jhana, or, or compassion, or appreciative joy, or equanimity. It's like there's, there's many ways to really let the mind become still enough for wisdom to arise and for that kind of healing of the body and mind to take place. So I think what what's valuable is probably to do some exploration. I mean, maybe there could be an opportunity for us to talk more about the specifics that would be helpful for you. Um, and and I, I can appreciate very much, you know, reading, um, you know, mindfulness, bliss and beyond as you know, like something you get to a point where you just can't do it and you feel like, oh, well, I just, I'm a hopeless failure. <laughs> you know um, and of course, it's Ajahn Brahm's method and it works for him and it works for some people, but for other people, that's not their way into it. And it's still certainly um, those those deeper states and enough, enough solidity and stability of mind for wisdom to arise and there's a lot of controversy over how much depth the meditation has to have like when I asked Ajahn Gana I've told many of you this before they said how deep does the samadhi need to be and he said not that deep and this is this is something that's been a, a point of controversy for probably as long as since the Buddha died. And it's because different people, different character types, different mental makeup um, do this in different ways. And I know for a fact, wisdom can arise without um, super deep jhana. And so there's definitely ways to to, um, find methods and have like maybe two or three of them that really are helpful. And then when one's not so great and then do a, do a different one. So I'd be happy to talk more when we could set up a time.
if you want to, about details. Um, but for each of us, it's a matter of exploration and trying things. Thank you so much. Um, by the way, I also love Ayakema's loving kindness meditation. So that's sort of my two um, kind of go-to effort. Um, but having said that, I think probably this year um, I started feeling more um, friendly with my breath um, because I do follow Ajahn Brahm's guided meditation. Um, it's just sometimes I feel a little bit discouraged, like why I'm, you know, my master, my beloved teacher talking about math, uh, breath, I'm just having this kind of difficult situation. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's very important for us to not let ourselves get discouraged, um, to not take it too seriously, to know that there are, a, a, there's a wide range. The Buddha gave so many different, different methods. He was so, so amazingly versatile. And, you know, most teachers teach the method that worked for them, not like, you know, 30 different approaches like the Buddha did, you know? <laughs> and so we have to understand, we may not be the same exact, you know, like setup. We may not have the same exact, um, components that work the way they do for our teacher and we can still have tremendous like respect and gratitude and faith in our teacher but we may have to look and, and one of the things I love about the Thai forest tradition it's not a it's not a guru disciple kind of tradition and the, the Buddha wasn't that way either he really he really encouraged people to to you know seek out what's going to be helpful to them. And that might be with different teachers. And that's just, I don't mean that you're doing that, Lane, but I want to make that clear for all of us, you know, that if we find something that our, our beloved teacher is singing, I've had this with various people, whether it's Bhikkhu Bodhi or Ajahn Pasano or Ajahn Gana or whoever, they're, they're, you know, you, you kind of run up against something that doesn't work for you. But there is another way that works and that's that equally valid that we can find basis for in the Dhamma. So just to not let ourselves get discouraged or, you know, like when we think, oh, I'm a hopeless failure, <laughs> think about all the positive things that have happened and changed and your good qualities and your skills that you can bring to this path and this practice. And um, we can overcome these hindrances and we can find a way in to deeper peace and happiness and we have our friends to help us so I want to thank you all very much for your practice and Misty had to leave and I didn't have a chance to say goodbye but I think she knows um we really appreciate her presence and everyone's. So for all of you who came for the first time, I, uh, I hope this was helpful and um, feel free to let us know how things are going for you. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.